We have come in the Gospel according to John to chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. We've entitled this, The Witness of John. In this case, it's John the Baptist, obviously, from the context. In the prologue, in the first 18 verses of the book that we are studying, <clears throat> John the Apostle has meticulously, has precisely introduced us to the Word. He has precisely introduced us to the Word as both God and that one as Jesus. The only one, as we saw last week in dealing with a very familiar passage in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we saw that he is the only God-man. There is no one else like this. This is not man with God in him. This is not God and man. We saw specifically in the scriptures last week, he is the only God-man. Fully God, never laid that aside, and fully man as he came into this world in which he had created. Now John moves on in these verses that are before us to show us the first week of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, in case you didn't recognize it. This is actually his first week, and how do we know that? Well, we're going to see Jesus come onto the scene, but if you just follow with me just for a second in a couple of things that I read and that which I have not gotten to and won't till next week. Not only does he come on the scene in verse 19, but you go to verse 29, just look at the beginning of it. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming. If you go to verse 35, you'll notice, and it says, and again the next day John was standing. And if you go to verse 43, you'll see again, the next day he purposed to go. And then if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day, what third day? After leaving in the passage, verses 43 to 51. And so it is this gospel account that actually gives us, though not in all of its depth and detail, gives us the first week that's relevant as far as John's concerned of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ leading into his very first miracle in chapter 2 when we get there. It is a very practical passage that we have before us in verses 19 through 34. And I want to say right at the outset this morning as we exegete the passage to you that I'd like you and I to be looking for the practical application immediately to us. Practical application in what way? Observe what John does here in his witness. Because each and every believer, that is all believers to put it another way, are responsible before God to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you are a true believer, whether you realize it or not, you are a witness, either good or bad. But you are a witness to Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. But we are also to give a verbal account. And evidence of salvation is that you believe in your heart, but also that you confess with your mouth. And all believers, not just the pastor, not elders, leadership, every believer is called to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And I would tell you that in this passage, verses 19 through uh, 34 before us, if you observe the principles that John uses, you can go a long way 
in your own personal witnesses. <clears throat> the text is really broken down. That's why I've given you that outline in the bulletin. Very simply in the two areas. John's witness, first of all, before the religious leaders. That's verses 19 through verse 28. <clears throat> and then by his own division, beginning in verse 29, on the next day, he takes us from verses 29 to 34 before he gets to verse 35 with the next day. He gives us his ministry before the public, before all people in general, if you will. So let's first of all take a look at John's witness to the religious leaders. You'll notice right away who comes to him in verse 19. It is the priest. It is the Levites. And the Levites, just to help you a little bit, they were the ones who assisted the priest in their public ministry, in their priestly functions. And they were sent by the Jews, but which Jews? The Pharisees, if you look at verse 24. They were sent from the Pharisees. The religious leaders were concerned with John the Baptist. They wanted to know about this man that they had heard about. They were concerned with the letter of the law, the Pharisees especially. They knew what the word of God said, and they heard of this ministry of this one that's baptizing, and so they send a delegation to John the Baptist to find out who he is. And they come to John the Baptist right away. Now, let's remember, just go back for a second to verse 6. Let's remember that we were introduced to John the Baptist in verses 6 through 9 of this gospel account. And as you're scanning those verses, and I'm going to give you an outline in a second, but as you're scanning those verses, let us remember that John the Baptist did not fit the mold. What do you mean he didn't fit the mold? He didn't fit the mold of what the religious leaders thought should be. If you saw John the Baptist, you would recognize that he was very poorly dressed. And when I say poorly, I'm talking about because he did not have money. He did not have a lot of finances. And he would have, in the clothing that you look on him, you find out he was very poorly dressed. He also had the diet of a poor man. When you hear about him eating locusts and so forth, and a lot of people get off onto that tangent, the reality is he had such a diet because he, again, was a poor man. He didn't have wealth to sit down and have these beautiful meals that anyone else would have or even that the leadership was enjoying. He also lived where? In the wilderness. He lived in the desert. He was a man who didn't have much by way of means in this world, and yet I want to remind you what Jesus said. We saw that last week, Jesus, uh, two weeks ago. Jesus said, among all that have been born of man, there is none greater. And that includes David, and that includes Moses, and that includes anyone else that you can think of. Abraham himself. There was none born of man that was greater than John. None by the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest. And that's Matthew 11, 11, if you want that as a reminder. But you'll notice again in verses 6 through 9 in preparing us for the passage before us, the outline that John had given us that we would find with John the Baptist. <clears throat> and here's the outline that I think that can also help you in your personal witnessing and see if it does not come out of the text that we're studying. Number one is he did not draw attention to himself. If you look at verse 8, he says in verse 8, I'm not in our passage yet this morning, 
in verse 8, giving us the outline for what John would do as a witness, it said that he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness of the light. And let me tell you right away this morning, when you're witnessing, it is not about you. One of the most, to me, frightening things, believe it or not, is when people start to boast about how many people they've brought to the Lord. This is not about statistics. This is not about us. John the Baptist, you're going to see as we go through his testimony, he's going to get to the place that even his disciples next week are going to say, hey, wait a minute, we're losing disciples to him. And he turns around and says, I must decrease. He's the one that's got to increase. This isn't about me. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. This is not about me at all. So first thing is, he's not going to draw attention to himself or his success. Secondly, obviously from verse 8 and verse 7, he was to point people to Christ. That's the thing. He was simply a means of getting people to come to Christ. And third, above all of it, obviously, is that in coming to Christ, verse 7, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the three-point outline is simple, even in our own witnessing. Number one, it's not drawing attention to ourselves about how many people we spoke to, how we did this, how we did that, what I'm doing, whatever. Not at all. Secondly, it's strictly about pointing people to Christ. And third, part of our witness is to point them to Christ so that Christ can work in their heart that they come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And I personally believe if we had that three-point outline in all of our lives, there wouldn't be any problem at all watching how Christ built his church and everybody rejoicing when people are getting saved and nobody talking about their own success. So let's look at it. Let's look at it in the text. See if he follows that pattern that according to John, the apostle, he said he would follow. Well, we come now to verse 19. And they come to him and they ask him who he is. Verse 19 of John chapter 1. They want to know who he is. They're testing his thinking. He didn't fit into their mold, as I said. Maybe they thought that he was the Messiah because that's the first question that they're going to have for him. They've been sent and he confesses to them that I'm not the Christ. So in order to say that in verse 20, they had been obviously thinking in terms of that. Is this the Christ that was to come? Is this the Messiah? And you notice right away what he says. He takes nothing to himself. He says, I am not the Christ. He wants to get everybody to look away from him, not to look to him. Excuse me. He was not the Messiah. He was not the anointed one. He was not the one to deliver them. And he didn't want any attention on him whatsoever. And you'll notice that he says he confessed. He doesn't deny who he is. We're going to see that in a second. But before he even gets to his own ministry, which is going to come a little bit later, down in verses 25 forward, he wants the, even the religious leaders to know, wait a minute, don't even get it in your thinking. Because in the religious leader's mind was competition. In the religious leader's mind, if you remember, even when Jesus came on the scene, they were always concerned about all their details. John the Baptist doesn't want the attention on him. He says, I'm not the Christ. He's not denying who he is. He's simply taking the time to turn the attention away from him. Well, maybe he's to be associated with end times. Maybe he's not the Christ, but he's to be associated with 
the end times and the coming of Elijah, verse 21. And so you come to verse 21, and is he Elisha? Or Elijah, I should say. And that's what you had in your reading in Malachi chapter 3. And how does he answer? He says, I am not. They ask him another question, and I'll come back to Elijah in a minute. Are you the prophet in verse 21? And he answers no. Notice the simplicity, by the way, and the progression of his simplicity. Watch this. In verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. In verse 21, I am not. Verse 21 at the end, no. Can't you get it? It's not me. I'm not that one. I'm not the other one. I'm not the prophet. By the way, the prophet that was to come was spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 18, referring again to the Messiah. John's response is simply, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. No. Now, I need to pause for just one moment regarding Elijah. He denies the fact that he is the literal Elijah, obviously. Why? They said, are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. There's no debating here, by the way. I get absolutely amazed when scholars begin to start to debate things when the scriptures are so plain. He is not the literal Elijah. Why? He says he's not. Well, then how does he fit into what's said in Matthew? For example, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I want you to see a couple of things here. Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Is John the Baptist Elijah? Well, he says he's not. I want you to see something in chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's the passage out of Malachi that we read this morning. Now watch what Jesus says. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And watch verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then, verse 13, the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about who? John the Baptist. Well, what do you mean? Is this contradictory? No. First thing I want you to recognize is the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that Elijah must come to restore and Elijah had come in their midst, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't, what does that mean, they didn't recognize him? Go back with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I'll get right to the heart of the issue on this. Go to verse 14. Well, I'll look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says this, uh, has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So you see he's talking about John the Baptist in verse 11. The Lord Jesus Christ is talking. Now I want you to notice what he says in verse 14. And if you care to what? Accept it. He himself is Elijah who was to come. What does that mean? The Lord very clearly said even before chapter 17 that John the Baptist, if you will accept him, is Elijah. Then in chapter 17 he says, Elijah has already come, but they didn't recognize it. What does that mean? Give me, let me give you one more passage, and I'll pull it together. Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. 
by the way, this does have to do with eschatology as well. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That is why you compare scripture with scripture. That is why you don't take verses out of context. That is why you compare all of the surrounding passages related. What's he talking about in verse 17? The power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers back to the children and the disobedience to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is that saying? That both Elijah, and when you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, was to prepare people for the ministry of what? Receiving the Lord. That is why John's message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you notice in Luke, he says that he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You pull it all together with the passages, then what have you got? John the Baptist says, I am not Elijah. And then the Lord says, well, he is if you accept him. Did they accept him? No, they did not. No, they did not. So what happens? He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, just as it said in the scriptures. The Lord said, if you recognize him and accept him, that's the one. They didn't accept him and they didn't accept Jesus. So is Elijah still going to come back? Possibly. That is why the Jews still, during their Passover feast, they leave a chair. As some of you have been at the ceremony. They leave a chair open and they say it's for Elijah. Will it be the literal Elijah? My personal opinion is I don't think so. Why? Because John the Baptist could have fulfilled it had they accepted him. They did not. And as they did and didn't recognize it, the Lord will also send, as you see in the book of Revelation, another witness before the people to give, in the power, by the way, of Elijah, to give a warning of Jesus coming back. So what do we have? Go back to John chapter 1 now, verse 19. Is he the literal Elijah? No, he would have fulfilled it in coming in the power of Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah, if they had accepted the kingdom. They didn't. They didn't accept Christ. They didn't accept John the Baptist. John the Baptist lost his head. Jesus Christ was crucified. So they're frustrated. If he's not the Messiah, if he's not the prophet, if he's not Elijah, then who in the world is he? So frustrated by the questions that he answered no, no, and no to, in verses 22 to 25, he then says, who are you then? What do you say, and why are you baptizing? A series of three questions. What's his reply? His reply is positive, verse 23. He said, I am, here's who I am, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. By the way, that's the spirit again of Elijah and the power. But as said by Isaiah the prophet, so he recalls to their mind, and these leaders should have known, that he is the one to prepare. That's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And what he is saying is this. Number one, I am not to draw attention to myself. It's not me. I am simply a voice. I am simply one crying about somebody else to prepare you to look elsewhere. To who? A Messiah. There's a lot of people. You know, by the way, little side trip here. A lot of religions were built on the basis of the people that founded them. 
You know that's the basis of Jehovah Witnesses? You know that that's the basis of Mormonism? It's based on the person that found it. That's not what these people are. John the Baptist isn't interested in anything building on him. Not at all. He's interested in pointing people to Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture. What was he doing? He was baptizing. You notice that, verses 26 and 27. He was the one that was to proceed. They came from the Pharisees. You, know that, you notice that in verse 24. Verse 25, why are you baptizing if you're not that prophet, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah? And he tells them, I was the one to prepare, and I'm only baptizing with water. And let me tell you right now, water baptism saves no one. When I was an infant, as a Roman Catholic, I was baptized. I probably cried a lot, I assume, when the water was cold. I have no idea. I don't remember at all, but it did not save me. Water baptism saves no one. There are people who have been baptized in fundamental churches who are not saved. Why? Because they're, maybe their thoughts were that that's what was saving them. Baptism saves no one. Only Jesus Christ, as you'll see in just a moment, and only faith in him. So he was baptizing them simply to prepare. And he again, you notice how he points people to Christ, verse 27. First point is to get the attention off himself. Second point, point people to Christ. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me. Yes, this is what I'm supposed to do. Why? John was called to prepare the people and to prepare the way. John was called to do that through water baptism, and all he was doing was fulfilling his ministry. Let me bring that right home to us again by application. Are you and I doing what we're supposed to be doing? You know, there's a lot of Christians that don't do anything other than say they belong to Christ. Then they just wait for his return. What is that? We are all called by God in different ways, with different gifts, in different capacities to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve the body of Christ. And it is absolutely vital that we be doing what we're called to do. It was vital that John the Baptist be doing the ministry that he was called to do. And that is to baptize and appoint people to Christ and to call for repentance. And he was doing that. In verse 28, uh, verse 27, he reminds us, that again, the attention is not to him, but it goes to Christ because there's one coming after him. And then he tells us very specifically in verse 28 that where this took place was in Bethany. And by the way, that's important because it says beyond the Jordan. What does that mean? Forget the commentaries that you read to be very specific, or most commentaries. He simply says in the scripture here that it's Bethany beyond the Jordan. Why? to distinguish it from the Bethany that you know that's near Jerusalem. Do we know where that one is? I'm going to tell you right now. No, we don't. People try to finagle it to make it fit in and so forth. No, it's just simply he's made the distinction. There were two Bethanies. One of them we know of near Jerusalem. We can still identify it today. But he says this one was beyond the Jordan, and that's what the word of God says. So this is a different one, a town at which we do not know of of where that is when you say beyond the Jordan. And that's exactly what he says. So it's a location not known to us today. Will they discover it? Probably someday in an archaeological dig. 
again, to prove the word of God. All right, now what happens? He goes from the ministry to the Pharisees to identify to them that he's not the Christ, but simply one to prepare the way, and he comes to the public ministry that you and I need to hear. The next day, verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming, and what does he say? Look at this, absolutely amazing statement. He says, and there's no indication that the leadership is here, by the way. He's dealt with that in verse uh, 19 to 28. He simply says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus. How did he recognize him? By the way, he tells us in verses 31, 32, and 33. He recognizes him by the miraculous act of God of sending the Holy Spirit descending upon him. When did that take place? In his public baptism, that is, of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I have beheld the Spirit, verse 32, descending upon as a dove from heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, that is God, to baptize in water, said to me, upon whom ye see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I'll talk about that baptism in the Holy Spirit in a minute. So John recognizes him coming how? By the miraculous act of God in showing the Holy Spirit at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is this one that John is pointing to? Number one, he is the Lamb of God, verse 29. What do you mean the Lamb of God? The sacrifice of God. Lamb was given for sacrifice. Anyone who knew the Old Testament and all the Jewish feasts and all the Jewish ceremonies and all of the sacrificial system that went on, it all went back earlier, by the way, when Abraham took his son, if you want that connection. Listen, when Abraham took his son and was willing to sacrifice his son, which God commended, you remember what Abraham said? God himself will provide a lamb. And everybody stops because they find the goat in the thicket. That was only to provide for Abraham. But that was the seedling of God's provision of a lamb. And here he is on the scene. The lamb of God. The provision of God. Why would God send a lamb? You've heard it many times. For God so loved the world. That's why. God's love for you that are here today, both you who have trusted in him and you who have not yet believed in him. God's love was seen in his action, in that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who I'll refer to in a minute, again, as being preexistent. But he sent his son into the world. Why? As the lamb, as the sacrifice for what? The sin of the world, according to verse 29. And I'll expand on that in a second. But he's first the Lamb of God, God's sacrifice. He is also the pre-existing one. Look at verse 30. For he existed before me. John the Baptist says, he existed before me. Now, if you were here last week, you know this. And if you weren't, I'm going to tell you anyway. We noticed last week that John was born before Jesus in Bethlehem. And we also know that he started his public ministry, that is John the Baptist, 
before Jesus did, then how can he say that he existed before me? Because he's already taught us in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that Jesus Christ is the word of God, who was God, who created the entire universe. He looks and sees the God-man. He looks and sees Jesus Christ. Who do you see? In people's mind today, Jesus Christ sometimes is a nice religious figure. It was interesting. We have a game that we got for Christmas. I actually bought it. But we were playing with family members. Linda's side of the family were over at her house. And one of the questions, to my amazement, was, and it was read by Linda's twin's husband, he read this question and almost knocked me off the chair. It said, what would Jesus do? This is, a, this is a board game. What would Jesus do? Great. I have to answer this question. You know what my answer was? Exactly what he did. And that is, he died on the cross for our sins. That's exactly what he would do because as the scriptures revealed he would do. People have all different thoughts of who Jesus is this nice teacher, this religious figure, or whatever. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one who created the world that you're living in. He is God, very God. He's the one who will baptize with the Spirit, he says. Now, what does that mean in verse 33? He is the one who will place you into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 who takes a person who is filled with sin, who is anti-God, whether he realizes it or she realizes it or not, who doesn't want anything to do with God, who has fallen into sin and is worthy of death and will take that person and cleanse them by his own sacrifice as the lamb and give eternal life. And he is also identified in verse 34 as the son of God. And people have used that and misused that to say, yes, he's the son of God, but he's not God. Did you listen to what John said in verse 30 before he said he was the son of God? For he existed before me. He said in verses 1 through 18 that he created the world. He was pre-existing. To say that he is the son of God means that he is co-equal with God. And we will see later on, we study in this book, that the Jews understood that. And they got ready to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, for what good work would you stone me? Not for a good work, but because you, being a man, call yourself the son of God, making yourself equal with God. They knew who he was. John the Baptist was not interested in himself. He was interested in pointing people to Jesus, and he wanted to make it clear. Listen to me. One of the best, the biggest, not best, one of the biggest tragedies, I believe with all my heart, you've heard me say this before, is not going to be those who you get surprised are in heaven. One of the biggest shocks is going to be the people that you thought were going to be in heaven who are not there. And part of the reason is the way we give the message out. We talk and make it so simple. 
And the gospel is not that complicated, but John made it very clear. This is the preexistent Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. And when people go around saying, wouldn't you just want to accept Jesus in your heart? Don't you want to just get out of hell? Who in the world is not going to say yes? They need to see that they are sinners. They need to see that they are lost. And they need to see that they are condemned to hell unless they believe in Jesus Christ and no other. They're not calling on him to answer all the prayers of their life. They're calling on him because they are like the repentive tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Too many people that say they believe in Jesus Christ are simply believing in a Jesus Christ that's not the God of the Bible. Be careful. When you're witnessing, people, you, people will say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he's God. You cannot believe that Jesus is not God and be saved. It is impossible because Jesus Christ is God. That's why I can't save you. That's why this church can't save you. That's why no human being can save you. Only God, who left his glory above, could come to this earth and save us himself. That's why he's the Lamb of God. And though it's not a popular message, and though after this service I may not be popular, that's okay. Because the message of God is that Jesus Christ, God, very God, is the one that came and died on the cross of Calvary, and he is the only way of salvation. That is why in verse 30 he says this now. Not only did he identify who he was, he goes back to what Jesus did. He will take away the sin of the world. And by the way, it's singular. There is no sin that anyone in this room has ever committed that Christ did not die. You say, but I've committed murder, abortion, adultery, on and on the list goes. Christ died for the sin of the world. And I know that right now that's not popular. What do you mean the sin of the world? The scriptures could not be any clearer, my friend. I want you to see how John uses that term. He says in the context, as they were coming to them, that he, that is the Lamb of God, came to take away the sin, and he says for the first time, of the world. In John 3.16, I won't turn you to that one. You know what it is. For God so loved the world, I'm well aware of the concept of Jew and Gentile. That's not what the Lord said. In the simplicity, I could give this verse to the simplest eight-year-old and they would understand what Jesus said there. Look at chapter 4, verse 42. These are the Samaritans, by the way. And in verse 42 of John chapter 4, he says this. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, Samaritans, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the Jews and the Samaritans. 
the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's not what he said. The Savior of just particular people. Not what he said. He chose, and I would not tamper with it, the world. Look at chapter 6, verse 51. I, words of Jesus Christ himself, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. You see that, folks? I don't want you to miss that. Lamb of God, where did he come from? God, he says, I came down out of heaven. Does he mean that literally? Or maybe he doesn't mean that he came out of heaven. No, he means that he came out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, and shall, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I give him for the life of which I give for the life of the world. He said that, I didn't, is my flesh. I could go on. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, you can look at it, you can mark it down, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. There's many, many passages on it. The point I'm trying to make is simply this. He not only identified him as the Lamb of God, he not only identified him as the pre-existing one, he not only identified him as the Son of God, but he said he came with a purpose, and that is to take away the sin of the world. Well, then you say, Pastor Denon, it's universal salvation. No, not at all. Why? That's the third component. First component is we don't draw attention to ourselves. Second component is you say what the scriptures say, no more, no less. It's Jesus. Then what happens? God in his marvelous grace opens up the understanding of individuals that hear the gospel, and we leave that with him, and it is appropriated by belief. The act of man, no, the act of God. Very clearly in scripture. But what happens is they need to believe on him. And that's what we're told. In John, go back to John chapter 1, verse 7 again. He bore witness that all might believe through him. Now, will all believe through him? No. Will there be many in hell? Yes. Will everyone in this room believe in him? I doubt it. Who will? The one that God opens up the understanding to because no man could comprehend and no man could understand because the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. That's how sovereignty works together with the proclamation of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. Is he the only way? John says so. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There isn't anybody that can come unto the Father but by me. John the Baptist wanted people to see not who he was, but who Jesus Christ was. Why? So that they could come and believe on him because he is the one that will baptize with the Spirit. That is, will put us into the body of Christ. It is his work. Why did he die? Because I can't die for my own sins. You say, well, I've only done some small sins, you know, little white lies, you know, uh, cheated at work, cheated on my taxes, you know, things that people don't notice. How are you going to take care of that? Well, I'll try to be good, and my good works will outweigh my bad. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. That's what every religion of the world, apart from Christianity, teaches that if you are good enough, you get to heaven. That's not what the scriptures teach. What the scriptures teach is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. If you happen to be visiting here today, you might get insulted by what I'm going to say, but I know this about you. Even if I don't know your name, you're a sinner. That's because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God so loved the world that he sent his son. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he satisfied the righteousness of a holy God because he who knew no sin became sin for us. Took the weight of sin. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Universal salvation? No. Salvation for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Only because he did the finished work of Almighty God. Back to the testimony and wrapping it up of John the Baptist. He didn't point people to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. Why? So that they could believe on him. How can we be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? By telling others the good news. My friend, we are living in a day and age that the world around us, you know what it's like. You watch your TVs. You pick up your newspapers. You listen to your radios or CDs or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Message of the world is not a very hopeful one. Economy doesn't look great. Middle East didn't look too good yesterday. Things are getting worse and worse. You say they've always been that way. Yeah, because man's the one that's doing it. And you know what it's because of? One word, sin. What did Jesus die for? The sin of the world. And that sin is rejection of God. That sin is disobedience. That sin wants to suppress the truth, Romans chapter 1. Does not want the truth. And people today in this country want the name of Jesus eliminated. Why? Because they don't want the truth. However, the good news, folks, the real good news is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that isn't just an intellectual belief. I could believe, that, for example, with the new president that will be coming in, I can believe that he's going to be the president of the United States and he's going to live in the Oval Office, and I can know a lot of things about Obama, but it's not very likely that I could go up to the White House and knock on the door and say, I'm here to see him, and they're going to let me in. Too many people know a lot of things about Jesus, but they've never placed their destiny on him. This is in here, not just up here. This is where I'm ready to rest my eternal destiny, not on my goodness, but on the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. To believe means that you're ready to trust in him as a sacrifice for your sins. He didn't die and stay in the grave. He rose again victoriously. God is satisfied with that sacrifice. All his righteousness has been satisfied and the payment paid. The issue is trusting in him. All those who trust in him will have eternal life. Jesus said, all who come to me will in no wise be cast out. Come to him today. Trust in him, fellow believer. Witness for the Lord Jesus Christ is what you're called to do. But do it like John the Baptist did. Be busy doing what you're supposed to be doing. And certainly that involves pointing people not to you, but to Christ. And let him do the work in their heart. 
and you'll see people come to Christ and get saved. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the testimony of John the Baptist. Father, it's absolutely amazing that you accomplish anything with the likes of us. We're frail, even as believers. We get scared by people's looks. We get scared away by what they might think of us, what they might say. And yet, Father, help us to see the power of the word of God, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, even piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, as a discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I pray that as we see the example of John the Baptist, who you testified as the greatest man among all born of flesh, this man was not about himself. He was about pointing people to Jesus Christ. And Father, he just preached the message and let you did the work. Some will believe, some will not. But Father, that's not our responsibility. I pray, Father, you'd help us to be bold as believers. To not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but to see that it's the power of God unto salvation to as many as believe. And I pray, Father, for any that are here that are without Christ. Maybe there's confusion in their life, chaos in their life, sin in their life, and they know it. Father, open up their understanding that they might truly understand the God of the universe by coming to Jesus Christ. Help them to see that you do love them, and you've demonstrated it by action, by sending the Lamb of God to be the sacrificial lamb to die for sin. And I pray that they would trust in him today, right there, right in the pew. We ask this in Christ's name.